At 11 o'clock, here's the news from the WOR newsroom, Dick Partridge reporting. It was a pleasant August day, but some New York police aren't too sure. They had a running battle with some 250 demonstrators in midtown Manhattan. 38 of the demonstrators, some of whom kicked and punched policemen, were arrested. The battle started when policemen attempted to herd protesters from the Times Square area where demonstrations are banned. They were protesting U.S. government actions in Vietnam. 36 were booked for disorderly conduct and two for felonious assault. And tonight a new demonstration was underway. The militant Negro leader, Jesse Gray, led them through the streets of Manhattan. They marched to the school where the shooting of a Negro boy by a police lieutenant touched off a series of riots in Harlem and Brooklyn earlier this summer. In that block, the Reverend Seymour Brown led a one-minute prayer, which included a new appeal for a dismissal of the Lieutenant Thomas Gillen. The group then marched to Gracie Mansion, the mayor's residence. They shouted demands for the resignation of Police Commissioner Michael Murphy. Across the street, 18 members of the neo-Nazi U.S. National Party staged a counter-demonstration with placards reading the Commies Civil Rights Movement and shouted, Gray is Red. Former Deputy Police Inspector Anthony Obramski retires one hour from now with a $7,000... Mrs. Kennedy will attend a gathering in Atlantic City, August 27th, designed to extend thanks to those who shared her late husband's goals at the 1960 Democratic Convention. Russia said tonight it is prepared to aid Cyprus if the island's invaded by a foreign power. This pledge came in a reply from the Kremlin to the request by the Cyprus government for Soviet help during earlier Turkish air attacks. The Greek foreign minister in Athens declined to comment. French President de Gaulle has sounded the trumpet again for an independent French nuclear force. The call was made on the anniversary of the Allied landings on the Riviera 20 years ago. Pope Paul VI offered public prayers today for Italy's president and the leader of her Communist Party, both unconscious in the wake of strokes. 73-year-old President Antonio Segni lapsed into a coma in Rome as word came from Russia that vacationing Red Chief Palmiro Tagliati also had taken a turn for the worse. In tonight's sports, the Yankees beat Baltimore 8-1 and the Mets lost to Philadelphia also 8-1. Speedy Scott won the $50,000 American Trotting Championship in record time at Roosevelt Raceway, and the Daily Double was number six, Fiery Flyer, and number seven, Poplar Anson. Now, the weather report, clear and cool tonight with temperature dropping to about 60 in the city to the upper 50s in the suburbs, mostly sunny with seasonable temperatures tomorrow. The high in the low 80s inland to the 70s at the shore. Fair tomorrow night. The low 60 to 65 in the city and the 50s in the suburbs. Right now, it's 67 degrees in midtown Manhattan. And that's the news till now from the WOR Newsroom, Dick Partridge reporting. This Sunday in the Journal American, Claire Booth Luce tells what really killed Marilyn Monroe. A sophisticated woman of the world looks at the life and death of the flaming sex symbol who won the hearts of the world, yet lived and died in misery. Read it in Sunday's Journal American. This is WOR in New York, your station for news. secret desire to be bundled into a paddy wagon. In fact, seriously, I think we all do. I think each one of us would like to see himself with a pair of black glasses, you know, and it says, nabbed at limelight. You know, <laughs> holding up a copy of the Village Voice, you know, hiding. Hey, listen, listen. Do you realize, gang, shh, 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 hold it, hold it, just one minute here. Look around you. Do you realize we've got the raw material here for a fantastic party? All we'd have to do here would be to cut the lights. Well, there's plenty of material here. And, and... 
and, and, and secretly, what would, what kind of a party would you most desire to be at if nobody back home knew? <laughs> if you could get away with it? Well, here we are, you see. Everybody thinks we're down here in the village at the limelight on Sheridan Square having hamburgers. They think we're listening to folk music and being very official. We've got an out, a cop-out. I can play records on the radio, see. Pretend I'm Martin Block. We'll turn off the lights and go! Let's go! All right, all right, all right, gang, who wants to be the first volunteer? <laughs> We're all set. We've got 400 pounds of grapes back here. We got 17 Nubian handmaidens. We've got a loot ready to go. Can't you just see the next morning the Daily News says gigantic orgy breaks out in village. 275 nabbed. Do you realize next Saturday night when we go on the air there would be a line of Shepherd fans from the front door stretching all the way to Philadelphia by way of Pittsburgh, you know? All waiting to see uh, life in the village. <laughs> but actually, now, wait a minute. Shh, shh, at ease now. At ease. Now, you know very well, each one of you knows, that it's all talk in a yard wide. I can see those talking faces in front of me. Wouldn't you like, seriously, to be part of the first truly classical orgy since the great days of Rome? Can't you see the togas being passed out here? Can't you imagine yourself in one of those long silk bathrobes, lounging, you know, and they're bringing a boar's head in, and you're sitting there all slopped up, you know? And you're saying, Ave Caesar, in hoc agricula conch, in est spittalauk. And they bring in a big tray of grapes and drop them one by one into your old mug. And back of you sits this guy playing the lute, a classical tune. And up there on the pantheonic stage, you see the beautiful Vestal Virgins dancing ever dancing what a TV show can you imagine that on the Ed Sullivan show right after the Yale marching team <laughs> well it's all showbiz I, I don't think we're capable this is honestly the generation I believe it whose official drink is Pepsi-Cola they don't serve that at orgies oh no let me tell you though one of the very few times I have ever been involved in anything remotely approaching that. Now, most of us have one or two wild, lurid memories in our mind of the time that something happened, something incredible. <laughs> There's a guy already. He's getting nervous back there. <laughs> His wife is looking, what's that, Fred? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not talking about little Funzieville in the in the drive-in. I'm talking about I'm talking about the real thing. Let me tell you what happened one night. You know, we Americans don't realize how really utterly, thoroughly, and completely cube-like we are. We are the squares of the world. We really are. The the the, the Chinese have been experimenting in stuff that America is a thousand years from yet. <laughs> I'm serious. They've written books a thousand years ago on it. I, I, one night, I'll have to tell you how it happened. I flew to Europe on an airplane. Now, I think one of the things that flying does to you is that it gives you a, such a quick transition that you can't make the subtle adjustment of change. You know, when you're on a boat, it takes seven days to get there and your mind slowly detaches yourself from your past. Very slowly, and then by mid-ocean, you're prepared for the new experience. 
It's like purgatory. And then about a day out, you begin to build up the excitement, you know. And about a half day before you're there, they're bringing around little books. How do you speak to the Germans, you know, and all that stuff. And they're serving apple strudel in the lounge. And you're drinking German beer. And by the time you dock at Hamburg, you're halfway there, you know. You're ready. Well, old Shep gets on the plane out here one day at Idlewild. Now, that is one of the world's most, I have to admit it, and you do too, antiseptic air, airports. That's where Pepsi-Cola is king. That's the only thing that comes out of the machines there, you know. And everything is clean, and it's all formica and sparkling, and the airplanes are silver and beautiful. And I get out there, and I get in this airplane. This is the first time I have ever flown to Europe outside of a military aircraft. And a military aircraft is another dish of tea, completely. Sloppy, bumpy, the wings flopping. Oh, no, when you get into one of these big, beautiful jets, it's a whole world. And so I'm there. I'm an American. I've got my little flight bag. See, I even bring it. I got a little flight bag here. You know, it's got a little KLM on it, little things like Lufthansa, little things like Qantas and all that. And I have this bag. I go up the red carpet into the airplane. And the minute I step in the airplane, there's a funny, fetid odor. Now, you are aware that most airlines today are saying, when you step in our airline's plane, you are literally stepping into our country. You get in the jet. <laughs> That's right. That's right. You ought to see some of the Turkish airlines. Oh, wow. <laughs> Oh, yeah, you know, you step over the pigs and the goats. And there's a guy laying there, you know, he's out like a lightning. Oh, he says, oh, la, la, la. Oh, for the sahib. That's great, you know, to have a store to say that to you. Bakshi sahib. Well, I step into this airline plane. And, you know, I'm, I come right out of Idlewild. I come right through the little coffee shop there, and I step into the airlight, and they've got this exotic music playing. Yeah, they have a little music system there, but it ain't playing that little string group, you know. Guys are blowing stuff through their nose. I walk in immediately, you know. I get the sense of sort of pulling back. I'm used to flying American Airlines. They're little planes, you know, that go to Buffalo and that. Everything's clean. I get in this plane. And the seats are tapestry. They've got symbolic guys blowing horns with goats running around. You know? Oh, yeah. Have you ever wondered, you know, what that goat is that you see in the tapestries? That guy with the little horns and the hair and a big beard and he's got goat feet. And he's playing a lute. Well, he ain't looking at neon signs, friend. You know that guy? And, and they have this all over the seats. You know? So I, I sit down in a play, you know. Immediately, I sit like this, and, and they start warming up the motors. And this chick comes down the aisle. You never saw such a stewardess. She stands right in front of me and says, Will you have a drink? Will you? Will you have a drink? Well, you know, being an American, you usually say, It's, it's, it's two in the afternoon, you know. Being an American, you say, well, yeah, I'll have a Coke. Uh, uh, no, no, make it 7-Up. She says, will you have a drink? And you knew she was not talking about you who. You just felt it, see? So she says, here, have a drink. And five minutes later, I'm sitting there with this drink in my hand. It's two in the afternoon already. I can see why Western civilization decayed. You know, what a sick feeling. You know, I just got up and I'm drinking... And I'm surrounded by a whole bunch of people who look like Sidney Greenstreet. <laughs> you know, Sidney Greenstreet, Peter Laurie, guys with Panama hats. They're all sitting there looking very... I have to papers, Hans. <laughs> and these guys have been on the plane, apparently, you know, ever since it left Lisbon, honestly. <laughs> and they're sitting there, and these sinister-looking women. And, of course, I'm an American. <laughs> and Americans like to think they're the rotten people of the world. This, this is one of our wonderful little fantasies that sin started with Americans. We like to think, no matter what America does, five million Americans are going to start demonstrating. Don't be rotten to Vietnam! You know, 
Don't be rotten to Cleveland. Don't be rotten. Don't be rotten to the world. Don't stop. And of course, they're talking about their mother. They really are. Americans keep confusing the world with mother and daddy. And they keep confusing it with Hespel, Indiana. All the things, but not the rest of the world. It knows. And so I'm sitting in this plane, and we take off. Well, as you start going towards Europe, it gets night very fast. The sun's going the other way, you know. And by the time we are out two hours, it just seems like just a couple of minutes, it's dark. And the plane gets dark. It starts having a strange purple light in it. And people start filing up and down, moving up and down, and they're carrying little drinks and bottles, and there's little whisperings going on in corners. They really have a lounge in some of these plays. You know? <laughs> they don't just sit there and talk business. And so all the way over, I had a feeling that something was not exactly what I had thought it was back in Hessville, where I earned my life Boy Scout badge. Americans really believe you can be prepared, you know. <laughs> We're the only Boy Scout in the world who really believes it. You ought to see the German Boy Scouts. They are prepared. And they know it. They really are. And so I'm flying on this plane. I land at an airport. And I'm suddenly in another world. It doesn't look at all like Kennedy Airport. It has a certain kind of... Oh, you can smell old wine seeds. There's, there's a sense of, of old things everywhere. And the airplane lands... And a guy comes out to me, my guide, who had been sent to me by an organization that was there to greet me. And he says, well, you are here at a good time of the year. I say, what, what, what? Well, it's uh, what we call festival time. Well, of course, I'm thinking of the Strawberry Festival back in Hesville. <laughs> See, I don't like festivals in general. He says, yes, it is fashing, what we call fashing here. And he says, it is a very exciting time, and you are here at the peak of the fashing season. He says, now, when somebody asks you on the street, when you get into town to go to a party, you go. <laughs> and so, you know, being a typical American, I'm always a little worried about, gee, will they like me? Do I need an introduction to somebody at the party? Well... That night, I come out of the hotel, I walk three steps, and I see everybody in town is in costume. Every last person. A drunken polar bear goes reeling past me. Like, yeah, he goes reeling past me. Seeing, I, I looked at this, and, she, and, and, and he is followed by a small panda who keeps yelling, and drunk. No, and I'm standing there watching this scene going on, you know, and I thought, oh, well, it's a costume party. <laughs> it's kind of fun. And a man says to me at that very moment, standing out in front of the hotel, he's an American who's lived there for a year and a half. He says, you American? And I say, yeah. He says, man, where you see this? <laughs> I see what? <laughs> what? He says, come on. Come on, we're going. And we start going up and down streets. He's got a Porsche. You know what a Porsche is? This is one of the world's angriest automobiles. It's got this little motor in the rear, and it's just a little shell. It's like a bullet. And it screams up and down the streets at 2 o'clock in the morning at 90 miles an hour. And I'm sitting in the front, and wee, wee. And he's going, beep, 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 beep. You know those horns? He is an American man who's digging the seed, seeing pandas and polar bears and kings and princes and... Gypsies are flying out of the way, and all the cars are going. Everybody's screaming and yelling and drinking. And then he says, out of the car, let's go. And we go up, I says, where? He says, I don't know, there's a light. <laughs> and so we start going up the steps. Now get this, I'm telling you about an experience that I will never forget, of a bombed-out apartment. Well, now, when the bomb had come down, it had sheared off the entire front of this building just blah, 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 blah. and there it was a 12-story building just a front knocked right off and they've kind of boarded it up with tar paper little things see 
And you could see little cracks of light where people were living. Well, they don't know. The room is sheared off. They got a canvas over it. And up the back, they have built ladders. Literally ladders. You're climbing 12 stories in the air. You know, and here I am, you know, we're going up and I, jeez, this little wooden thing, you know, I'm hanging on his thing. Up, up, we're going high. And he's up there saying, let's go, man. Wow. He's climbing. Boy, when a, when a man gets the bit in the teeth, he'll go, you know. And he's, let's go. Come on, boy. Let's go. Let's go. His foot slips again. Let's go. Well, we get up to about the 10th floor. And here in the side of this sheer brick wall that was all cracked and shattered from bombs is a wooden door that looks like the kind of door that you see over places marked stay out, trespass. You know, it's all banged and hammered up and it's wooden slats. And he crawls up to the edge of this thing and he goes, gunk, 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 gunk. Hangs there, gunk, gunk, gunk. And we can hear inside a strange kind of hum. It's just going, boo, boo, boo. Just kind of a strange musical hum. A purple quality. And by now, I am scared out of my skull. I'm telling you, even to this, even this moment, I, I get a funny, sick feeling in my stomach when I remember this scene. And remember the feeling, I'm hanging 12 stories above the ground in a bombed-out building in München. I am 14 million miles away from home. I am just 24 hours out of good old friendly Idlewild over here, you know, and the sins of America. And I suddenly, you know, it's night all over. It's wild. And I can see those two Gothic towers standing up. You ever been to Munich? Well, there's two Byzantine towers, you know, those two that hang up there in the sky and way down off in the distance you can see a cathedral and you can hear the sound of the night coming up. Horns, people yelling, screams, just floating, dogs barking. And I'm hanging there and he's going, gunk, 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 gunk. And suddenly it begins to swing open. And a guy looks out, he looks down, he is dressed like a gypsy. He's got a big hat, you know, with the earrings, and his face is all fixed up. He's got a big bandana around his neck. He says, what is it you want? And the guy says, Fashi. Oh, hi, oh, yeah, come in, come in. Oh, right, sit And we start crawling up, and I stepped into this place. Now, I've never told any... I've never told this story on the air. In fact... I remember coming back from Germany. I didn't tell this story when I came back because there's women and children, you know. <laughs> well, I, I stepped into this room, and the first thing I noticed was it's about four feet high. It's been bombed out, you know, and they put little pieces of cardboard and that, and it is absolutely stygian black with tiny blue lights placed all around it. And it hits me, this fantastic, strange, sweet, wild, decadent, lascivious, passionate atmosphere comes rolling out at me. And there is rock and roll playing. Yeah, it's going... And it's a... It's a it, it, that's what's, what was so scary about it. It was a mixture of what I had thought familiar. You know, we always associate rock and roll with 12-year-old pimply-faced kids. Well, all of a sudden, out of the dark, I hear chubby checkers. And this smell hits me. And I, I start walking through the darkness. And I hear I've got my little parka on that Americans always wear with my KLM bag, you know. My, all my cameras banging. <laughs> and, of course, I come from the main office, I think, you know. Greenwich Village, where they really know how to swing. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I'm thinking I'm going to take the message over there. Well, I walk in there and I see on the floor this writhing mass of, of, of seals, elephants, gazelles, goats, gypsies, a writhing mass of all the things that you can ever imagine out of a Hieronymus Bosch painting. Yeah, they're really there. You know, guys with goat pants, with big horns, you know, all with masks. 
And there I am, and it's, it's a scene like out of Dante's Inferno. What they are doing, you wouldn't believe. And it's all happening here at once, and they're smoking all kinds of strange oriental herbs and drugs of one kind or another, guaranteed to bring the passion to, to life. And it's all going on. The American in front of me, he grabs me by the shoulder. He says, ain't this what you always wanted to see? <laughs> and I, you know, being, a, being natural, I says, no, uh... Well, let me tell you, within five minutes, I realize that I'm in the middle of something that can, I can never possibly conceivably describe. I, even to this day, I can't tell you the full, peculiar, strange, wild, animalistic feeling that comes over even you if you're there. You be All of a sudden, you, you feel horns growing. You know, and your ears get real pointy. You know, that, that point in your eyes suddenly gets slanty and real big. And Shepard's walking like this. You see. I'm walking around, and I hear these strange voices, all kinds of tongues. There's German, there's Swedish. There's once in a while, hey, baby. You know, one of my countrymen is down there. And there's, 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 there's languages I never heard. There's Turkish, Arabic, Greek. It's all... And dunga, 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 dunga. And over in the corner, there's a guy got a little stand. He's sitting there, and he's wearing a turban. And he's smoking a water pipe. And he's got a mask over his face, and he is in charge of this particular funhouse. And, and he, he, he motions you over like this. And I start going through, you know. I figure I'm, by this time I'm in the middle of a movie set. It ain't real, you know. <laughs> I walk over there and I expect him to say, Welcome to the fun house. And now if you will step into the Ferris wheel here. He says to me, Welcome. One mark, please. I said, One mark? One mark? Ein mark? He says, Ein mark, please in my pocket, you know, I get all that little funny money they got over there, you know, looking in the dark and it's the little blue lights and I pick this one coin out and I give it to him, he says, Donkey Shane, well, what will your pleasure be? <laughs> Here is the moment of truth. Now all you guys think that if you ever had the chance, you know exactly what you do, don't you? Well, I think this is based on the fact that none of us ever get the chance. <laughs> well, what will your pleasure be? I sort of stand there, and the guy with me nudges. says, tell him, man. <laughs> so here I am, you know, I'm frantically thinking, I swell up. You got a Coke? <laughs> And so, as we all applaud Puritanism, like good Americans, what solid, honest, reliable John A. Gambling radio station is this? AM and FM. Yours, right, your friendly, lovable station. Are you for a filter and rich flavor, too? The logical move is L&M. The logical move. The logical move is L&M. The rich flavor cigarette with a modern all-white filter. The logical move. The logical move is L&M. Are you for a filter? L&M has a modern, all-white filter. Pure white, both inside and outside. And you get the good taste of L&M's rich flavor leaf. The good taste of soft-natured, longer-aged tobaccos. So if you're for a filter, and rich flavor, too... The logical move. The logical move is L&M. There we go, guys. There's nothing.
nothing like the free enterprise system, I say. Bye, George. You want more? All right, fellas, if you set that thing up once again, we'll play it again. It's on the schedule. Do you want to hear it again? Yes, yes. All right, tell them to set it up down there, Skip. We'll give them what they want. I'll show you. You bums. You call for more, you'll get more. Are you for a filter and rich flavor, too? The logical move. The logical move is L&M. Are you for a filter? L&M has a modern, all-white filter. Pure white, both inside and outside. And through it, you get the good taste of L&M's rich flavor leaf. The good taste of soft nature, longer-aged tobaccos. So remember, if you're for a filter and rich flavor, too... The logical move... The logical move is L and M. The rich flavor cigarette with a modern all-white filter. The logical move. The logical move is L and M. The logical move is L and M. Okay, now you see, see how rotten you get this crowd is here. Ladies and gentlemen who are listening to this, I have no control over this maniacal, nutty group here tonight. And, and you notice, I want to tell you one thing, they don't have to listen to them here. They're sending those lovely little messages right at you in Trenton. All right, all right. By the way, do any of you want to say anything to Teaneck right now? Yes. All right, let's hear it. Hooray, Teaneck, let's go. Whoa, whoa, all right, hold it, hold it, hold it. Now listen. I do believe that that night, and I, and I can't tell you the rest of it. Well, you see, I said I want a Coke, and the guy says, Very, we are out of Coke. What else? And he straightened up this turban, took a suck on that water pipe, that hookah. Says, we have many things here. Would you care to look at the catalog? Well... <laughs> So, you know, after all, you don't want to make people feel that you're not... You're a party pooper, you know? <laughs> and I'll tell you, it's very difficult to, to squib out on a party like that. It, it engulfs you. It sort of grabs you like a shark. You know? <clears throat> and you would be surprised at the things you learn about yourself. I'll tell you. By 5 o'clock in the morning, the smoke is swirling and the dawn is beginning to come up like thunder over Dortmund out there in the plains and I am climbing down my parka's hanging on me crooked I got my KLM bag my friend is coming down he's giggling all the way it's the cold light of dawn and down there you can see pandas and polar bears and gazelles and one thing and another all heading back for the little home in the suburbs where this morning they will shave and go off to work in the office like regular clerks and regular peoples again. And I get down on that cobblestone street. I'm serious. This is a, after that night in Fashing. I get down on the cobblestone street and I start to walk about 20 or 30 feet. And I don't know whether any of you have ever been in a gothic American city. There isn't any. There just is no gothic city in America. Well, within five minutes, I am surrounded by gargoyles, knaves, great, twisted, evil, leering faces of concrete, stone, and marble devils all looking down at me. And, and you know, I, I, I'm serious. It, it is at those moments that you have an understanding of the history of Western man. I am feeling decadent, my stomach is erping, you know. I sort of jiggle, and I'm, I'm, always, I'm always under the impression now that people are following me. My hat's kind of squishy, and I arrive back in the hotel. I lie down. It's an American room, by the way, I've got. They have special rooms for Americans to decompress in. It's like, you know, they have, they have little Bakelite and Formica things and water that comes out of faucets and stuff like that, and little blinds, you know. And I lay on these clean sheets, and it's beginning to ooze off. And after ten minutes of clean sheets, Formica, ice water, 
electric lights that are lit, I begin to get mad at them. Somehow I begin to say to myself, Oh, what a rotten thing. Oh, rotten people. It's terrible. Jeez, rotten. Boy, oh boy, they, they, what they need is a good A&P here. <laughs> I had to square them up a couple of good Chevy agencies and a couple of good rotary men to clean up the town. They ought to have a chapter of Kiwanis International, some high Y. Get the Presbyterian Church going here. And I swing that thing up and I look out, you know, in that evangelical way that all Americans have. They want to square it all off. They want to smooth it all out, you know. Make it into little lines and crosses where streets all go like this, this. In Europe, you know, they go like this. Oh, twisty. Some of them are narrow, little narrow, like little rivers. And I look down and I say to myself, of course, well, someday you'll realize just how good America is. Yeah, you're the guys that caused it all. The twisting streets and the gargoyles and the knaves and the great flying buttresses. I've always liked that phrase, flying buttress. Reminds me of a girl once. That I, well, that's another story. and it's, You don't want to hear that one, do you? You tap the wellspring here. Well, well I look out, you see, and I, I look down at that town. I go in then into the bathroom and I shave. It's funny how when you clean yourself up physically, you begin to feel somehow morally right. Yeah, that's why we believe in cleanliness so much, you know. We figure if we wash enough, it'll go away. You know, what do you think Life Boy soap sold for years? You remember, uh, can you tell me what Life Boy's slogan was? That's right. What is it? Are there any doctors in the audience? Can they identify what B.O. means? <laughs> Halitosis, a very serious medical problem, which is cured by gargling our product. Yes, this is all American. And so I go down and eat in the American lunchroom they've got on the premises where you can get a good, honest, burnt hamburger. Good, greasy, rotten hamburger. And you can, you can, you can drink some good old American beer brought at great expense from South Chicago. Bitter and green. And I sit there and I feel so, so so clean, so great, you know, I'm among the evil people, and I'm beautiful. Yeah, and I look at this waiter coming over, and he's a big, fat waiter. He says, Bert, would you like some butter, please? And I say, oh, you rotten decadent. Yeah. yeah, bring me some butter. Thank you, thank you. Would you like some cream with your coffee? I drink it black like a man. Like a good, clean American man. Bring me some black coffee. He, yeah, yeah. He walks away. And all the while I'm saying, ooh, rotten people. Two hours later, after snapping with my brownie, a collection of buttresses, a collection of flying gargoyles, it's beginning to get dark again. And I see my first gazelle tentatively coming out of a doorway after having taken off her dirndl. She is now a gazelle. Not far behind her was a panda. And guess where old Shep was two and a half hours later? Doing sociological research to bring to you the story of how rotten other people are. Would any of you like to know where that place is? <laughs> oh, boy, you know, I'd, I'd like to see some, some of my fellow partiers someday, you know. I, I mean, what does a guy say after a party like that the next day and meets the crowd at the office? You know, they've all been there. How can you be official? But this, this, this little sense of sin is always nudging us, fighting it. I remember my Uncle Carl. And I'm going to have to tell you this story. Uncle Carl worked... Well, he used the Depression the way some guys use marble and clay, you know. He worked in unemployment as an art form. 
No, some, no I, I'm serious. I think all men have their time, and we like to assume that all men's time is the same. We really do. That, that work makes all of us happy. Not necessarily. Not at all. And Uncle Carl loved it because it was an excuse. It was a reason. He was a man of the time. And he'd sit out on the back porch and play his banjo on the, on the soft, quiet evenings in the south side of Chicago and just play away there. And he sang one song all the time, all through my childhood. He played and sang, Yes, sir, that's my baby. No, sir, ranka tanka tara, ranka tanka tanka tara, ranka tanka tanka tara. The entire neighborhood is watching, feeling sorry for Aunt Min. Look at that bum. Look at that rotten bum. It used to be, they used to say, you know, what a terrible person. He said, oh, yes, sir, that's my baby. No, sir, I don't mean baby. Yes, sir, that's my baby now. Well, like all men of his time, he hit a peak. His peak came when they passed the Dole Act in Chicago. And they gave away free food. And they used to wheel that truck up to the back of his house, and they'd give him free beef stew, bags of flour, bags of dried apples sardines in cans, loaves of bread. And Uncle Carl is sitting out there, yes, sir, that's my baby, no, sir. And all the while, of course, the, the, the Chicago Tribune was having big, you know, the big cartoons, the political editorial cartoons, and it says, old man depression, big high hat, that angry, gnarled face. And over here it showed J.Q. Public, suffering under the depression, crying. And Uncle Carl, yes, sir, that's my baby, no, sir, I don't mean maybe, yes, sir, that's my baby now. Well, this continued for about two years, and everybody else in the family was working. My father was working, my Uncle Al was playing the fiddle down at the old Heidelberg. His big moment came when he would come out of the wings wearing red underwear the old Heidelberg with a pair of big galoshes. So I had great uncles. But they're working, you see. And every two weeks, Uncle Carl would throw a party with his relief food. Everyone would come and they'd eat the stuff, the salami and the bread, 48 guys yelling and hollering. And Carl's, yes, sir, that's my baby. Come on in, gang. No, sir. By Sunday morning, they got nothing but a half a can of oatmeal left. And Uncle Carl sits back out on the porch. And every night, he and his family would visit other people to eat by. They would eat at Aunt Clara's house. Then they would eat at Aunt Kate's house. Then they would go to Tano Razel's house. Then they would come over to our house. And all the while, the men are saying, Why doesn't he save his food? What is this? But every last one of them went to the parties. Well, one day they announced that they were giving away teeth. <laughs> now, listen, the relief was giving away false teeth. And you had to have a minimum of a number of teeth to get them free. Well, Uncle Carl took everything free from the doll. And he had too, too many teeth. It said, yeah. <laughs> you see the import of that? <laughs> He goes down to the relief place and says he wants teeth. They open his mouth and he's got two too many molars. Well, that night, down in the basement, Aunt Min's got the pliers, Uncle Carl's got a cold chisel, and the next morning he's back at the teeth place. Well, I'm telling you that an absolute true story. This is kind of a family myth, you know. Well, Uncle Carl got his teeth. And he used to love, almost all of us, you know, have a little party trick we do. Like some guys can stick their stomach out. Watch this. <laughs> you know, other guys got double-jointed thumbs. Well, Uncle Carl did a thing with his false teeth. He'd stick his tongue out and the teeth would come out. <laughs> In a great big wild grin. A sinister grin. You know, they were, after all, they were relief teeth, you know. 
and they had a couple of fangs, and they'd come out. And Uncle Carl would sit there playing pinochle with his teeth hanging out. And he'd clip them together, and he'd learn how to talk through them, like Edgar Bergen. And he'd go, yes, sir, that's my baby. And his teeth are going, yes, sir, I don't mean maybe. Yes, sir. Well, when a man develops a really interesting little gambit like that, the chicks begin to go for it. And Uncle Carl would go down to the Bluebird Tavern at the end of the street with his teeth and his banjo and his old blousy ladies from the south side would be sitting there, you know, in their jugs. And he sits there, watch this, baby. <laughs> yes, sir, that's my baby. And the chicks loved it. They loved it. They, they used to sit down there and wait for Carl to come in. And the word was, you know, it's like waiting for Godot. It was like Eugene O'Neill, the Iceman cometh. He was hickey. Uncle Carl, every night at seven, would go down to the Bluebird Tavern, and they'd wait. It was the one thing that made life worth living. On the side. I'm serious, he got to be a, a, a genuine local character because of his teeth. And he would sit down there and play... And they'd drink that rotten green Chicago beer. And they'd eat the free pig's knuckles, spending their $4 that the relief people gave them. And Joe, he would sit down there with a the thing, and Joe, the bartender, would say, Come on, Carl, snap it up. And he'd give Carl free beer for his teeth. And back home, now we're coming to the point, is Aunt Min and the kids. They had seen the teeth. The bloom was off the rose. But Uncle Carl was down at the Bluebird every night. And in that quiet, soft, Midwestern air, you could hear the giggles of fat ladies. Hey, Carl, do it again! <laughs> and Aunt Min would sit down there angry, festering, with that look that ladies get of righteousness. Why did I waste my life on this bum? And here she was married to the most loved man in the whole neighborhood. He honestly was the most loved man. He made root beer in the basement. He played the banjo. He played second bass. He sang. It rained. Nothing stopped them. And they all loved him. He was hickey. And one night, Uncle Carl came home, drunker than a coot, his teeth hanging. Amen! Why don't you come down some... She, you know, like many women, she would never follow him. She wouldn't go with him. He always wanted her to come down to the Bluebird with him, you know. And she never would. And that was the one secret sorrow he had, because he really loved her. But she'd say, no, i got to think of the kids. And he'd come reeling in every night, his teeth hanging. Hi, amen. And she'd get this cold, angry thing. And, of course... Most of the women in the neighborhood were on her side. All the kids in the family loved Carl. That, that, that figure out there on that, that truck in the backyard. You know, everybody in the Midwest has a deserted car that is sinking into the mud out there. And he'd sit out there and play. Well, one night, Aunt Min, Uncle Carl came home about 2 o'clock in the morning, three sheets to the wind, he passes out on the sofa, that green one, you know, with the big gnarled black teeth. You, ever, you remember those sofas with the big black hands for feet? Each one has a little round glass ball with the gargoyles. Well, they had a set of furniture like that. And old Uncle Carl is sacked out, and Aunt Min, now I'm telling you the truth, comes right up to him and right out of his mouth. <laughs> Through the darkness goes Aunt Min, over the linoleum, past the icebox, into the bathroom, to that little thin, narrow, black window that is never opened. That one that looks out on that fantastically dirty, ancient, moldy midden heap known as the air shaft. She looks out, down they go. Whee! Cackling insanely all the way. 
and into that that thing down on the bottom. Beer cans. Oh, how many of you have ever lived in a rotten neighborhood on an air shaft? You know what goes past those windows at 2 o'clock in the morning? You'd be surprised, I'll tell you. You, I'm, I'm sorry, you know. Most of you people don't even know anything about life. I lived in a hotel once on 49th Street, right off of 7th Avenue, on an air shaft. And it was on the third floor. There were 18 floors of human beings above me. And this black pit. Boy, I'll bet there are bodies in there. I bet there are Viking canoes. <laughs> I mean, God knows what, you know. And at 2 o'clock in the morning, I'd hear stuff pouring past. Screams echoing. And I'd hear something go, And then you'd wait for it to hit. And it doesn't hit. It just goes, squish. It hits down there. Well, he... Uncle Carl, the next morning... This is a sad story. Uncle Carl, the next morning, wakes up. It's 10 o'clock, he's got a head, you know, that's bulging, he's, his tongue is thick, and he reaches for his banjo, he's going to go to work, picks it up, nothing but gums. And you know how people get when their teeth are gone, that gummy, that look, he's got this gummy look. Man! Hey, Mins, have you seen my teeth? Aunt Min said, no. I am not interested in your rotten teeth. I can't find my teeth, Min. She says, well, now you'll eat oatmeal and like it. And he sits down to his oatmeal. And Uncle Carl, at 10 o'clock in the morning, goes down to the Bluebird to look for his teeth. He's on the floor, you know, with the cigar butts and the tavern looking. And then the word got out. Aunt Min threw away Uncle Carl's relief team because it was making him attractive to women. <laughs> and Uncle Carl found out two days later that the relief people give you one set of teeth per depression. I said, wait till the next one, maybe then. And he goes home with nothing but gums. Nothing but gums. And poor old Uncle Carl spent, I'm, I'm telling you, spent the rest of his life gumming his salami. And Aunt, Aunt Min had this wonderful feeling of a lady who's won. And, and people in the, you know how, how, how they take sides in every family? Well, my mother used to say, well, you know, Men, you see, my mother had false teeth, so she understood. She said, well, men, you know, that's kind of bad. She said, I don't care. Those hussies down at the Bluebird are just not going to enjoy Carl alone. My mother says, well, why don't you get him a set of teeth just for home so he can entertain the kids, you know, and chew his salami. She said, I don't care. I don't care. Well, one night, Uncle Carl, now, girls... I'm telling you, a true Tennessee Williams, Edward Albee, Theodore Dreiser epic. One night in 1939, Aunt Min said to Uncle Carl, go down to the corner and get 15 cents worth of summer sausage sliced thin. Uncle Carl says, okay. All right. Takes his banjo. When do you want me back? She said, come back right away because Clara's coming. And we want to have a little coffee and some salami sandwiches. Now hurry off. Uncle Carl goes down the steps. His gums working. He hits Hoyne Avenue. Walks one block. Singing all the way. Yes, sir. He had a lisp, you know, when he lost his teeth. Yes, sir. That's my baby. No, sir, don't mean maybe. Turns left towards Fowple's Meat Market and was never seen again. Uncle Carl took it on the lamb. Aunt Min had stolen his relief teeth. She had stolen his life. So girls, look at the man across the table. What little gambit does he have? that is making him important to the women around him.
Are you going to steal his horn-rimmed glasses? Are you going to do away with the striped tie that he got that night? It went over so big with the girls in the file department. Are you going to do away with that sparkling, beautiful smile that he's worked so hard to, to build up over the ages? Yes. <laughs> yes. How many Aunt Mins are here tonight? How many uncle? Oh, there she is. There's Aunt Mins. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you, you know, it's a funny thing. You know, you, know, you do. The thing you hate, <laughs> the thing you hate most often is the thing you miss most. I'll never forget the first time that I walked down the street as a civilian after four years in the Army, after I had taken off the hated uniform. Now I've got my electric blue sport coat with the little horsehair things that stick here, you know. I've got a shirt that kind of bulges and the pants that grab me where I shouldn't be grabbed, you know. And I'm walking down the street, I'm a civilian, you know, for the first time. And I say, gee, you feel great, Shep. You're a civilian. And a lot of other guys, little fat guys with electric blue coats go past me. Funny-looking Panama hats. And I get down to the Fifefields drugstore and he says, Shepherd! It's my first minute home. Shepherd! And I get up and say, yeah. He says, hey, you never went in the Army, did you? <laughs> you know, what can you say? You know, you know you're loved. But the sad, have you ever had the sad, the sad thought that one day lightning's going to hit you and you're going to disappear and nobody's going to know for four weeks that you're gone? Well, he says, Shepherd, where were you? I swell, Otto. I was in the Army. He says, well, good. I'm glad to have you back. What do you want, a Coke? Lemon Coke, like usual? I said, yeah, yeah, bring me a Coke. Give me a Coke. The jukebox is playing a Bing Crosby record. There's a big sign. It says, the pause that refreshes. A couple of little chicks from high school are sitting back here. And I hear a guy out in front mashing the grill of a Ford with his Chevy. I hear the muffled curses, you know, of the guy that's always in the phone booth in every drugstore. And I knew that I was back in peace. And I loved it. So let's all give a big hand to peace, everyone here. And let's sing the praises of phone booths and guys that swear at them. This is WOR New York, your RKO General Station. More than three million American children suffer from impaired hearing, and earbanks may provide the answer to their hearing loss. You can help them and future generations by bequeathing your inner ear structures to science. For complete information on the Temporal Bone Banks program for ear research, write to Earbanks, care of Deafness Research, Box 5000, New York 17, New York. Stay tuned now for that fabulous Randy. It's 12 midnight. Good morning. Next five and a half hours, we'll see a lot of interesting facts develop, I sincerely hope. I've planned it that way, but the best laid plans of mice and men gang after Glay, or after Glay, or whatever the man said. We'll try it. We'll see what happens. We've got a conglomeration of people of various talents, all anxious to tell their stories, and uh, I just hope that we don't get too much crosstalk, because all of these people have such interesting stories to tell about themselves and their work in life that uh, I don't know whether five and a half hours is half enough. 
My name, the Amazing Randy. Not the fabulous Randy, the Amazing Randy. Sometimes known as the Stunning Randy and the Confusing Randy. And this morning, well, we'll see if we can um, perhaps educate you a little bit uh, in some things that you didn't know before. I know I'm going to be educated because we have with us five panelists. We have uh, Peter Pitt. He's an entertainer. And Peter Pitt is the only fellow.